You are listening to Ace Comicals. I'm Greg, and today I'm joined by my co-host Rahul. Let's go! Hello everybody, and welcome to Ace Comicals, episode number 67. Um, today it's just me and Ray. Hey Greg, how you doing? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, yeah, doing okay. Yeah. Where do you want to start? Should we start with yeah. Stranger Things Season 3? Yeah, well, let's dive thing, into it. it. That's a thing. Yeah, go on. That's so, a thing. Stranger Things Season 3 turned my Netflix viewing schedule upside down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we've been watching Stranger Things Season 3 and um, went back and watched all of season one and part of season two as well, actually, because um, Sophie has decided that she wants to give Stranger Things a go. So she's started at the beginning because she saw me watching season three and found it interesting. Um, and uh, an observation that I'll just start off with, because we all, we all know what... I mean, if... We know what Stranger Things is. It's a... Um, it's an 80s nostalgia fest split over eight episodes a season that deals with strange happenings in this little town called Hawking and its connection to an alternate dimension called the Upside Down. Um, and I've uh, made, a, made a, a connection, basically, another connection between Strange Things and D&D, aside from the surface ones that are throughout the series, and that is that the Upside Down is basically the Shadowfell. Okay. What so, does that mean? like, there's a... There's a plane in D&D called the Shadowfell, which is a horrible, horrible place. <laughs> and like a negative version of the, um, the the normal realm, I think is okay, the best so, way to describe it. So as you say, basically like what the Upside yeah. Down is described as. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Um, and I, I was watching it, and I'm like, this is pretty much the Shadowfell. Like, hmm. And, you know, like some of the creatures that live there, and, and the, the Demogorgon and things, and like... Yeah, like it, because being in the upside down kind of saps your. Um, you kind of start to think negatively, don't you? And things like that, I get. I think is what happens to you, and it's kind of that's kind of like what was in the Shadowfell. So it's basically like the Shadowfell, but not. Which is kind of cool when I kind of realised it. It took hmm. um, a full D and D session with my character in the Shadowfell for the penny to drop, because <laughs> I was like, wait a second, yeah. But the basic premise is the same, yeah. Um, for me, season three was really cool, and it it felt like a final ride, like one last show-stopping barrage of fireworks to wrap up what has been a great journey across the three seasons. And although I'm probably horribly wrong, and there probably will be a fourth season, and this isn't the end, I'd like it to be the end, and I'd I'd like it to stop there because the way this season plays out. It is. It could be a definite end, and I'd want it to be. Um, there are loads of great things about it that I could talk about, but I won't because I don't want to spoil it too much for you guys listening. I think it was the perfect threequel in a sense that if we look at Stranger Things as a series of movies rather than seasons of a TV show, it sort of evolves in the same way and follows the same kind of patterns of character development and plot. And... That could possibly be a symptom of its heavy use of 80s horror and adventure tropes, but it's like 
I mean, with it also being a subversion of that, some of those as well, like it takes them and flips them on their head and things like that, takes them and turns them upside down. But um, yeah, I think it's, um, I, I think I would like that to be a definite ending. I don't know. What, I mean, if you, you finished it as well, haven't you, Ray? Yeah, yeah. I've seen all three, all three seasons. I finished yeah. season three a few days ago, in fact. Um, and like, I think we've talked in the past how I, I think... I think Stranger Things is very good, like with a capital V and a capital G. Like, I don't think it's amazing. I don't think it's the best show on TV. I understand why it's so popular. And I think I've talked in the past how I kind of wished it had ended at the end of season one. And what it could have done at that point is have become like a seasonal... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Not like an anthology show. So what I wanted at the end of season one was for the, the reveal with Will at the end of that season to be like the end of our time with those kids in Hawkins um, and perhaps even the 1980s. And like the next season could have been a new story centered around the, like the monsters and the, the trials associated with the upside down and maybe focus on a different set of kids and maybe even in a different timeline, like the nineties and stuff. And Mm. obviously that didn't happen because like those kids were fantastic. The, you know, the, um, the production of this show was, amazing like everything that it capitalized on with the you know the 80s nostalgia was pitch perfect and it appealed across like many different demographics of both you know young and old and people who have this nostalgia fuel and people who are like us who are still kind of steeped in our childhood hobbies and stuff like that like it crossed over all of those things so i i know exactly why they did what they did um and it's been kind of nice to watch these kids grow up over the course of what it's been four or five years i think it started in 2014 um and that's been cool, but I think now, as you say, uh, season three ends in a way that it could be a really nice, like, closing chapter to this story. And obviously they're going to make more in the same reasons they made more, they made a season two and a season three. They're, they're not going to give up this property. It's way too lucrative. Too many people love it. Um, and it's just a cash cow for Netflix, really. Um, but they could do that thing that I was saying they should have done yeah. for season two. You know, they could maybe move it into a different place and there's, hints of that in season three and i yeah i'd still be in to watching it if mm. if that's what they did three three seasons of stranger things elsewhere would be nice yeah. like three i think it'd be cool yeah another three seasons elsewhere something else yeah that'd be good but mm. like i mean i i i was of the same opinion of you largely really with where you know season one's concerned and, and wanting it to finish there and not have another um, story involving the same bunch of kids but it, when when I got season 2 I actually you know it, it's something that I didn't know I wanted until it was there because mm. I do I do enjoy watching those characters and everything and I've enjoyed watching those characters develop and everything else especially Dustin like yeah yeah I, I think I say this quite often to you guys in various other places like various chats and things but Dustin's my spirit animal <laughs> so <laughs> i can see why <laughs> yeah and he's he's definitely ador- i mean all of the kids are adorable but he's yeah. like one of the most adorable yeah yeah exactly um so yeah that was uh stranger things season three which is available now and um yeah go check it out i mean you probably already are but yeah you don't need us to tell you that stranger things is good yeah <laughs> you you... Know? like probably yeah. everyone's shouting it at you yeah, you're probably only listening to this podcast, to be honest, because you're waiting for the person that you're watching Stranger Things with to get home so they can watch it with you. <laughs> you're probably going to cut me off halfway through this sentence when they're walking through the door, but there we go. Um, <laughs> so the other thing 
was Spider-Man Far From Home, wasn't it? Yeah. And, um, and... I'll let you go first, Fruit. Well, I was going to say, because Spider-Man Far From Home is something that I've been looking forward to just because I like the MCU, um, and I love Tom Holland as Spider-Man, and, like, I really like Zendaya as the new MJ and all of this. I like I like a lot about these movies, but it's a really hard one, I think, to talk about without spoiling, because there's multiple different kinds of spoilers. There's reveals to do with the characters in this film, there's reveals to do with plot points from Avengers Endgame. So I don't... what. Where do you think we should land well, on this? What what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you to stop listening and go watch Stranger Things and then come back because um, <laughs> <laughs> what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to make the spoiler warning right here, right now. And then we're going to talk a little bit about Spidey Far From Home. It won't be too long, but um, there is... Abs- I, I've tried, you know, I've, I've looked at this Rubik's Cube and I've tried and I've tried, but there... Every which way, there's no way I can say what I want to say about this film without spoiling it. Well, to be clear, we're not going to spoil, like, um, twist reveals or anything, like, in the end of the movie, like, what we traditionally be, like, the, the closing plot points or anything. But there are a couple of things that we want to talk about which may not be, um, you know, which may surprise people who haven't got the same connection with the Spider-Man universe that we do, or, like... If you've if you've read any Spider-Man comics in the past, you'll probably know where things are going to go. If you've ever played any of the Spider-Man games on like the PS One, you'll know who the heroes and villains are. But we just want to save that for people who may not have any idea whose whose only exposure to Spider-Man is from yeah. the existing movies and the existing MCU uh, like yeah. character. Exactly. So um, this is where you should stop listening and go switch Netflix on. And then... yeah, take an eight-hour break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> possibly well hey i'm not saying watch all of it i'm i'm expecting you to be on episode six or seven by now but <laughs> we're not going to talk for that long but yeah um come back um in roughly 10 minutes time and we will have finished talking about it so uh spider-man far from home all i can say is wow and what an ending to phase three and like I just want to start with a quote from somebody talking to me about this film. Um, Somebody at work who watches MCU films, somebody that I work with, was saying that um, if I wanted to have a nice air-conditioned nap in a dark room, then I should go (laughs) watch Spidey Far From Home. (laughs) What a sap. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Like, what?! I mean, you know, I beg to fucking differ. Like, (laughs) honestly, like, how can you say that? Like, how? I mean, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but that that is an opinion I will truly never be able to understand. So I I thought this film was amazing and um, I loved every minute of it. And like, sitting in the cinema watching it, like, I I knew what was coming straight away. Like, I already knew what was going to happen. And I was just watching it build up and build up and build up. And, ah, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) you you say something because I'm just going to gush. Okay, so a couple of different things. So the first thing that I was, I want to be mindful of spoiling is um, spoilers for Avengers Endgame. So I'm going to do that now. But I like how much that Spider-Man Far From Home... Uh, takes what happened in 
um, Endgame and runs with it, namely the death of Tony Stark and how much it genuinely influences Spidey's character and Peter Parker's character. And, like, how much... Not just how it influences how he's behaving and, like, the PTSD that he's suffering in, like, a post-Endgame world, um, which I love how they address that kind of stuff, like how the people who got snapped back are existing five years in their own future. Or, like, five years from their perspective in the future, but they haven't... Everyone's moved on without them kind of thing, and, like, the repercussions of that. That's something I mentioned in our Endgame review that I really hope they would... Um, like touch upon and like they don't give it too much time in this film but at least they give it some time like it starts off with a little montage of uh, like people coming back from the snap like while in the middle of like playing sports and stuff and then getting whacked in the face with basketballs and things like it's there's a really creative and funny and like weirdly light description of what happens to those people who were removed from the world and then came back people like Peter Parker um, and it's kind of glossed over because, like, he doesn't seem to be having too much trauma with that, but, like, at least they're having fun with it. Anyway, so I like I, the fact that they there's, like, the specter of Tony Stark in the background of everything, not just Peter Parker's life, but, like, the world itself and, like, not just, um, like, the protection that the world feels it needs, which is a plot point in this because it's all about um, a hero coming up to to pick up the mantle from where Tony Stark left off in some ways. Um, but also just like the the people in the world just generally because there's like a lot of graffiti there's a lot of artwork there's a lot of like um, you could just see an outpouring of love for Tony Stark in the background of everything and I just thought that was like a nice touch in the production design and like the storytelling Um, and then the other spoiler that we're trying to be uh, like trying to tiptoe our way around is who the major villain of this film is and like I just want to check if I've got your permission to go ahead and say a thing right now, Greg. Like, you know what I'm going to... I'm well, driving I've at, right? I've already given the spoiler warning. Anyone who's still listening now, it's their funeral. <laughs> well, so... Uh, <laughs> anybody who anybody who knows Spider-Man will know that Mysterio is a villain. Like, it's a well-established old villain who is, as far as I'm aware, like, not even, like, an A-list villain. He's part of the Sinister Six, if I'm not mistaken, right? Is that yeah, right? He's, he's yeah. kind of A-list... As far as Spider-Man's rogue gallery, Spider-Man's rogues gallery goes, I'd say he is. I mean, he's A-list because he's part of the Sinister Six, but he he's always had like he's he's always been somewhat underserved or like like his thing is like ooh illusions, you know. And it was never it was never a serious threat to Spidey. He's not, but like, world, look, he's not a world-ending threat, but he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's big in Spider-Man terms, and I like Mysterio. He's cool. Well, the thing is, I like this um, film version of Mysterio the most out of any of the Mysterios I've read or played and stuff in the past. So the point being that um, the guy who is, you know, set up as a hero to work alongside Peter Parker, the character played by Jake Gyllenhaal, turns out to be Mysterio. And like for us, you know, these audience members who know Spider-Man, we're just waiting for that reveal. And we won't give away what happens with that, like the, the machinations of how the not only does Peter Parker like how Peter Parker discovers that he's been duped by this guy he thinks is a good guy but actually turns out to be a master of illusion who is obviously a villain from our point of view but I do like how that goes down I like that whole the facade of it and like the the pulling the wool over Peter's eyes and like his having been modernized to fit everything from the NCU and also how his powers are modernized so it's not it's not magic, it's all very technology-based, and they go a long way to justifying it, and 
justifying it in the context of MCU tech and stuff. And I think it's a really, really good portrayal of Mysterio. And I think he's one of the best villains we've had so far. And not just because of like his ideology, but also it's just really freaking cool watching yeah. the the illusion tech happening and like they go to some interesting places with it. Yeah, I do I do like the way Mysterio is done in this and I liked the build up to the like the switch kind of thing. Mm. Like when Mysterio <laughs> reveals his true plan and whatever like the machinations he's had in place mm. like everything else like everything leading up to that and and like i think i was um i'm not going to mention the specific point i was at actually but i was at a certain point in the film when uh peter gets something and as soon as he gets that something i'm like fuck that's that's what's going on and as soon as I knew that, I was sitting there with this huge grin on my face in the cinema. And I was like, that's awesome. I already know what's going to happen. Mm. And um, and it does happen. And uh, yeah, it's, it was absolutely great. And, and Mysterio wears the fishbowl, which is nice. They didn't, they, didn't try yeah. and, like, they didn't try and like serious him up or anything. They gave him the fishbowl, which, mm. <laughs> which I love. <laughs> well, it's all about the theatrics in it, and like it works really well in that in that context. Because that's the thing; it the, the reveals work on two levels. It works for us. Like we're not. Um, I don't. I'm speaking for you here, but I don't think we yeah. were ever bored. Oh, knowing, no, no, no. I mean, it could be that there's a way where um, the reveal is obvious. I'm thinking like it reminds me of something like Star Trek Into Darkness, where we know that um, Benedict Cumberbatch's character is Khan, and like we're just waiting for him to say it, and like when he says it because they were pretending like they were pulling the wool over our eyes, and we're all like, no, we totally get this. This, like, Mysterio reveal works for us, because, like, we know that he's the villain, but yeah. everything leading up to it is still entertaining, and it's still, like, we don't need the twist for the for it, the reveal to be satisfying. But then it also works for people who have no idea who the character is, and that, I could imagine that would be a really shocking surprise to... You know, to people who don't, who've never heard of Mysterio or what his agenda is, and I, I, I think they've written it in a way that works really well for both level of viewers. It's, yeah, definitely. that's really good. It's a very giving film that way. And and Jake Gyllenhaal, 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 Jake Gyllenhaal is an awesome villain. Um, yeah, <laughs> he's he's good at doing the cold creep sociopath, which kind of works really well for what he's doing in this and it's yeah i mean he's basically playing himself from nightcrawler in some ways just maybe yeah. a little bit toned down and a exactly, little bit more yeah. like likable but it's the same it's that same energy yeah. uh, and and he brings he brings it all to the table it's great yeah, yeah. that jake gyllenhaal sociopath energy yeah like the um <laughs> the like the kubrick slasher smile thing yeah, uh, yeah that he does really well yeah yeah he's good at that <laughs> yeah um, and like we haven't even gone into like the you know, the teenage relationship drama stuff or like the the European adventure stuff or yeah. you know all of the technology that Peter yeah. gets or like him dealing with um like all of Mysterio's illusions and all of, and like some of the really cool sequences which capitalize on that because I don't want to dive too far into it it's just fun fun stuff and yeah. I feel like I say this with every other MCU film but I you know, every new one because it's it's like recency bias and it's the most recently satisfying thing. But I, this this is up there with my favorite MCU movies. And like, maybe I'm gonna have to watch yeah. it a couple more times to like to clarify yeah. that. But like, it it was a really fun watch, and yeah. I think it's it's a nice closer to like its phase 
three or whatever it is now yeah, for the MCU. Yeah, yeah, I think that caps off the Endgame storyline really nicely. Yeah. Nicely indeed. And uh, if you go back through our previous casts, every Marvel movie is Ray's favorite Marvel movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I mean, not, well, not all of them. <laughs> but not I, do, them, but, I but, do find them. Yeah. I just find them generally fun, and I like yeah. that. They are. They're all good films. They're a good watch. They're a kind of thing you can sit down and enjoy and not think too much about, and it's great. And in the same way that I enjoy reading the comics, in the fact that they are good escapism, and that's that's just what I like about it. Um. A couple of other things I wanted to mention before we move on to the comics, and these are kind of it's it, this is comics anyway, but it's you know it's kind of comics. So, um, a big one for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fans was TMNT number ninety five when that dropped, because um, there was a big reveal in that that was that they have introduced a female turtle. Um, now, obviously, this is not the first time a female turtle has been introduced into the TMNT universe, as it were, because um, in the next mutation, which was the kind of live action series, we had um, Venus, as in Venus de Milo, going off the uh, Renaissance thing. Hmm. Yeah, they called her Venus. Um, but like they've introduced her into the comics, which is big because this is the first time that they've had that in the comics and um it's really cool and it's done in a really cool way um you've got this like absolute badass who was um a member of the foot clan who was one of splinter's um bodyguards one of splinter's tuning and she's injured and to try and help her they have to give her a blood transfusion because they're trying to help her using using mutagen to, to help her heal because that's like the only thing that's going to save her at that point because she's gravely injured they lose the mutagen and what they have to do is they have to give her a blood transfusion of mutant blood and uh, leo steps up to the plate and when she gets leo's blood she starts to transform okay and uh, she becomes a turtle and that's like the final page of issue 95 is her lying on the hospital bed with her clothes covered in blood looking turtly um and I love it. Yeah, so this is Jenica, and um, we've already got a couple, like, there's a few, um, like, um, bits of art going around as well of what she looks like in full turtle gear with, like, you know, like, even revealing the color of her headband, which will be yellow. Um, okay. Yeah, and she looks great, and I'm I'm 110% excited about this, <laughs> so... Yeah, this is going to be really cool, how it plays out and how it goes from here. I'm into it. Is Jenica referencing a Renaissance painter as well? What, what, do you know what the background of that name is? Um, I don't think so. I don't think it's a okay. Renaissance painter or anything like that. I think it's. I, I don't know what the background of that name is. I think, as far as I'm concerned, it's just the name of this character. She's Jenica. Um, she was okay. trained as a soldier in the Foot Clan, and then when the Foot was taken over by Splinter... Uh, she has been an ally, a staunch ally of the Turtles, and recently she's been a little bit of a love interest for Casey Jones. Um, okay. Her and Casey went on a date, which was interrupted, I believe. And um, yeah, she was gravely injured by Karai, which is Shredder's granddaughter, hmm. um, in a meeting that went sour. And um, this was like, there's been a couple of issues of the Turtles trying to get her to safety. Um, trying to escape the EPF, the Earth Protection Force, with 
Agent Bishop and also trying to escape Karai's mutants. And uh, they get her back to the old ter- the old lair, and that's when they have to give her the blood transfusion. Hmm. Metalhead as well is now working with the EPF. So Metalhead is the um, the robot that Donnie built term- Terminator Turtle thing. Okay. Yeah, it's all it's all really cool, and uh, it's all really great. And uh, this I think this is like one of the big things that's going to happen in the build up to issue 100. So. We are excited because they keep they get teasing big things like for issue one hundred and for a new like you know, and I think this is like part of the big thing is the fact that Jenica is now a turtle, and I really like it because it's yeah it's just a cool a cool thing and uh, yeah I just wanted to talk about that because I thought it was a great ending for that issue and I am stoked for the future of Turtles comics. <laughs> um, other than that. I went to Small Press Day. So, um, you ever heard of Small Press Day, Ray? I hadn't until this week, actually, when I saw it advertised at the back of Orbital Comics uh, when I went to go pick up my, my weekly stack. So, do you want to, yeah, go tell me what, what, what's, what was it? Because I think I missed out on it. Yeah, so Small Press Day is a, um, it's like a, a thing where co- comic shops up and down the UK have been running sort of miniature conventions um had tables set up and things like that and um small press comics creators indie comics creators and things like that are you know there to sign things sell comics Hmm. do artwork for people just just you know awareness of of indie comics and awareness of indie comics creators and things like that you know they're there to do signings they're there to do artwork for people they're there to sell comics and stuff like at tables you can come in and meet them in uh comic shops up and down the uk and um it's a really cool event um i mean i i like me some indie comics and things like that and i like you know like these like people that produce zines and things like that Mm. like i enjoy seeing that and it's you know like because this is this is kind of like the roots of comics like these people that are producing zines and small indie comics now are the people that are later going to be like drawing your favorite superheroes or writing your favorite superheroes for the big two maybe you know Mm. and this is this is how people get started and this is where people's breaks come from and things like that and it's really cool um so i went to a small press day in forbidden planet leicester and at small press day in Forbidden Planet Leicester, we had um, it ran from one to five um, Saturday afternoon, and uh, that was the thirteenth of July. And uh, we had Carl Richardson, uh, Drew Sumner, Ryan Button, uh, Patrick Scattergood, and uh, there was a guy there called Gustavo Vargas, who I've talked about on this cast before. Hmm. Um, now, I had read. Gustavo's comics Lima and Trujillo that I picked up from um, Leicester Comic Con when he was at Leicester Comic Con Um, and those two books are part of the same world he actually was telling me um, because he he recognized my face and um, he was like oh yeah you're the guy that talked about my books on the podcast (laughs) (laughs) and he was like well into it like that we talked about his books on the podcast He, he was like you know um, he was quite pleased with the fact that we mentioned him. Well, we're going to be mentioning you again. We're doing it now, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, he was um, 
he was talking to me about um, the, because we liked Lima and Trujillo. If you go back a couple of episodes, you'll be able to listen to me talk about those. Um, and he was talking to me about how he plans to do a third book set in the same world as those two, and they're all going to get drawn together. Um, and I'm quite excited about that and to see where that goes. Um, just to give you a little bit of a heads up about what these books are actually about, it's um, Peruvian cyberpunk. So it's like he uses a lot of um, it's like cyberpunk, um, Ghost in the Shell style tech type stuff, that kind of thing with um, a South, you know, like Peruvian influence and a lot of pre-Columbian influence in some of his character designs as well, which is really cool. And um, I, I loved the whole thing that he's built building with these two comics. I was like really into it. I've got a few stickers of some of the characters that I picked up from him yesterday, which are now adorning my uh, PC case and some of my pull boxes, my comic boxes. Um, and like I picked up another comic off him called Circadian Rhythms, which I'll get onto in a moment. Um, so. Yeah, it was just great to talk to him again and to pick up some more of his work. I got I got one of his prints, which I intend to frame for display, um, which is like a really cool kind of like surreal print of a guy standing wearing a suit, but his head is um, interconnected ribbons coming out of his shirt, the top of his shirt, like all multicolored ribbons just kind of swirling around and stuff. And it's really nice. Um, and yeah, I... I grabbed another comic that he worked on called Circadian Rhythms, which is an interesting skew on traditional fantasy tales. Now, the credits for Circadian Rhythms, um, it is a 13-page one-shot comic, and uh, it is written by Michael Sandbrook and Rob Jones, and uh, the artwork is by Gustavo Vargas, um, and the lettering is by Rob Jones. It is published on Madius Comics. Now, um, the premise with this is the truth behind the dragon myth. So that dragons are in fact these insectoid creatures that live below the surface of the earth and surface at regular points during history. Like, so so the idea of circadian, like the, the word circadian and what circadian rhythm means in reference to biological life... Uh, these things have a rhythmic existence and every so often they will come back to feed and things like that and they'll come back to the surface um, throughout history and uh, the battles fought against these creatures for survival is where the mythic tales of dragons and brave heroes come from and alongside these creatures there is also a timeless immortal hero trained to fight them and to rouse others into defense of their world when the time comes. So it's a one-shot, it's a single issue, and I loved it. Uh, Gustavo's style is just so animated and fluid, and everything is so incredibly alive, and movement movement is conveyed so effortlessly in this book. And, like, I actually, like, Gustavo and Daniel Warren Johnson have a lot in common stylistically. Now, Daniel Warren Johnson is the artist from other books we've talked about, like uh, Extremity and Murder Falcon. Um, and it's that artistic sweet spot that I really dig. Uh, the actual story here in these pages is really cool as well. It, it, I, I really like this reimagining and grounding of the dragon myth in something like this. And um, 
there is some cool lettering work throughout here with some awesome onomatopoeia design that just gives everything an extra dimension and pop and yeah it's just a great a great little book um and if you can get a hold of it do it because it's fantastic um and like yeah it's it's in black and white but like i love comics in black and white and i'm going to come on to that more in a minute because um within the next couple of things that we're probably going to talk about i'm going to like blab on about black and white comics um but ray um do you want to kick us off with something from your list yeah i can talk about homunculus um so that's the big book that i've read um read this week and i say big books it's actually quite a short book it's like 110 120 pages i think um so it's called homunculus it's by joe sparrow that's the entirety of the book is by joe sparrow art writing etc um, and it's been published by Shortbox, which is um, a publishing studio that I really admire. I think that I've I've read a couple of books by them. And, and uh, sorry, just mm. say also the word I was looking for when I was trying to talk about my comic boxes because I have short boxes. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a cool name, and they I think generally they're known for doing like quarterly like quarterly boxes where you get like five or six books in them and a bunch of other like like nicely crafted um badges and like little bits of artwork and stuff. I've never got around to actually buying the box from them, but I've read a couple of uh, a couple of books published by them. Um and in fact, I wanted to read Homunculus for the last recording and I was on their website about to buy it and then I realized at the very last minute before I actually purchased it that I wasn't purchasing a PDF, I was purchasing a book to be delivered to my house. <laughs> so I canceled the order and then I noticed that it was on the shelves in Autumn Comics, so I I picked it up there, and I was I was what? pleased by that because it's been on my list for a while. Why did you cancel it? Well, because I wanted to read it there and then in order to read it for the cast. <laughs> That's, I thought I was going to be getting an immediate. Li- I mean, it was entirely my fault. Um, although it doesn't say it on the website, so my feedback to them would be make it clear that you're purchasing non-digital uh, products. But I think that I think you're supposed to know that, and I just wasn't paying enough attention. Nothing nothing to do with Shortbox doing anything wrong, really. But I'm glad that I found it in Autal, because they have in their like indie corner they had they had it there. Um so this this is a short story about an AI that isn't as sinister as its ominous cover implies. So the cover is basically um in the middle of a mass of monochromatic pipes, cables, computers, files, etc., sits a large glossy black box with a red eye in its center. Um and in front of it is a woman with purple hair observing it. Like, think HAL 9000, which is, it's almost certainly referencing directly, since we find out when you read the book that the AI has been named Daisy. So the book follows Daisy from her birth at the hands of Veronica, her creator, teacher, sister, friend, it turns out. Um, And the entirety of the book is from Daisy's static point of view on her table, as the environment that she's born into changes around her and, like, the people in her life come and go and the teachings that Veronica, you know, slowly imparts upon her throughout the beginning of her life. And, like, it's it has very simple... I, say, I, I don't want simple to sound like a pejorative. It's, like, simple diagrammatic drawings with, lo- like, stuff full of charm. And, like, you get to know the lab room that she sits in really intimately as it's packed with detail but without being overstuffed. And, like, while generally it's drawn almost in, like I said, monochromatic blueprint tones, each panel has, like, big splashes of bold colour so that you have something to focus your eye on. So, like, the thing that's happening in that panel is painted with uh, in colour. 
And so the other main character, Veronica, the scientist, um, her creator, her teacher, her friend, that I said before, really nicely realized character. There's like a, there's a warmth to her, helped by the warm colors that she's painted in because like her scare, uh, scare, her skin and her hair are painted in shades of purple and she has like a big bold blue sweater, etc. And she's, she's consistently drawn throughout most of the book so that when a moment arrives where her template is broken, it's really affecting and like highlights the, the changes happening in the world in that moment. Um, and in the latter half of the book, it goes on to paint a series of like really beautiful and heartbreaking vignettes, which show the passage of time in ways that only a comic book can. Um, and I think I want to leave it there because, because it's such a short experience in some ways, but it's a really like striking story and it goes to places that I didn't really expect, um, based on like the minimal hints that you get from the cover and there's no, there's no blurb or anything on it. Um, but I would, I really urge people to go check this out and maybe, you know, not, not just because, not just because the book is great, but also to support uh, smaller publishing studios like Shortbox, and I want to keep picking up things that they put out because they're always putting out things that are surprising and like touching, and they they always follow the kind of like I don't know, just the vibe that I want from stories these days. And this I was really taken with Homunculus, and I've read it like three times in one sitting. And I'll pass it on to you when I see you next, Greg, because I think you'll like this. <laughs> yeah, I want to check that out. Mm, yeah. Sounds good. Um. So, onward from there, um, I think we should talk about a preview comic that we were given by Vault Comics. So this is a preview, um, and this is another one uh, from Vault Comics that we've been uh, we've been so graciously given to read. And this is something that's going to debut at SDCC Preview Night on uh, the 17th of the 7th, which is when this cast goes out. So, uh, SDCC being San Diego Comic Con. Uh, the actual book will be on sale on the August on August twenty eighth. Um, the preview that we've been lucky enough to read also includes a ten page black and white ash can of another upcoming vault title. Um, so this book, uh, the actual comic itself, is called Maul, um, and the ash can at the back of Maul is called The Plot, which will grace comic shops with its presence September twenty fifth, twenty nineteen. So, <clears throat> let's start with the blurb from Maul. Um, so, here in the heartland of the US, of A, the world has ended, but worry not, because the Maul still stands. And within the walls of this consumerist mecca lies a new world order. Box store tribes and name brand gangs all vying for limited space and resources. So, actually, you can worry. Especially... <laughs> For poor Andre Reed, who, after the assassination of a tribal leader, has to navigate the Mad Haven to prove his innocence and prevent the end of the world again. So, yeah, society's about to collapse inside a mall, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, um, this book is stunning, and the story here is fairly interesting like the mall or shopping center for those of us of the british persuasion <laughs> doesn't really have the quite ring saying the ring to it does it though shopping center. yeah imagine a comic called shopping center that just sounds so dismal <laughs> <laughs> yeah that sounds grim like, also is it uh, this is something i only recently discovered but is it mall or is it mall i say mall 
I say mall, but recently I like I was I think I was in a um, in an elevator. Sorry, a lift. <laughs> and that and that had like when you push the button, it has a voice that tells you what floor you're getting off it, and it says Mal. So I, <laughs> maybe it's the Mal. I, I I don't know. I think that might be an American image pronunciation. A lift just going Mal. Well, you've heard my, you've had the lift in my place where it has yeah, a weird, yeah. weird yeah. American accent. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Like, yeah. is I think because when I've heard it said in American TV shows and cartoons and such, it's more. Yeah. So, for example, in Stranger Things three, um, where yeah. you know one of the big uh, settings in that season is the mall. They do talk yeah. about it as Starcourt Mall, don't they? Yeah, it's the mall. Yeah. So I've anyway. always said mall, but. Anyway, yeah, sorry for that. So, so that's, yeah. that's mall as in, sh- for, for the British people, that's mall as in shopping centre, not mall as in spiky club, or mall <laughs> as in what a dog would do to you if it got angry. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, um, being the last bastion of humanity, like this mall, like the idea of that, the one thing left standing, like just the irony of it as well, like the one thing left standing in a harsh and unforgiving apocalyptic wasteland is this this like church of consumerism like tribes are divided mm. and take their identity from certain shopping outlets and fashion brands and mm. which to a lesser ex- to which to a lesser extent and a you know dialed down a good few notches actually happens in today's world um and as a mirror held up to our society today this comic uh, like works like that and how rampant you know like it, it sort of like really brings forward in your mind like uh, it literally is like a a warped looking glass for how rampant consumerism is to blame for dwindling resources and a large portion of the destruction of our planet and how fitting it is and how ironic it is that when the world ends through our own negligence ignorance and selfishness the one thing left standing is the eternal temple to the one unifying religion of the whole human race the church of avarice the monument to our greed the insatiable desire to impress each other to inspire jealousy and for that exact reason, I love it. <laughs> that was really well put. <laughs> <laughs> that That is the exact reason I love this book. And, like, the artwork in it is great. Like, leaning towards abstract impressionistic representation and its use of sharp-edged shapes and exaggeration of subjects with facial expressions. Um, there's a lot of fluidity where movement is concerned, and there are some particular moments I love towards the beginning of the book. Um, mm. there's a panel designed to show fast and fraught head movement as Andre surveys his surroundings for an urgent solution to the situation he's in. And you have the whole movement in a single panel with his face at three different stages as he snaps from left to right. And it's just fantastically represented. Um, yeah, I want to talk about that panel and you've expressed it super clearly. That's <laughs> yeah. It's one of my favorite parts. Yeah. I, I, the preceding pages as well, uh, where we're treated to, an action sequence as the post-apocalyptic mall soldiers burst into the room and we have an explosion and it is wonderful. And the gutters are black in this particular page, which makes the Mm. action and the explosion seem that much more cinematic and fierce. And like the character designs in here are fantastic. Like people building armor and intimidating tribal adornments from what they, what they find lying around the mall. So like everyday crap, like car air fresheners, worn as necklaces Mm. and things (laughs) like that. And, I think it's got a great sense of humour in that way. Um, and, like, the colour work as well, like, just adds an extra layer to all of this because it gives it, like, this stale, claustrophobic feel, like a whole world bathed in artificial light. Mm. Like, this sealed, like, 
humid, unclean building, like yellow and brown, you know, like this tint over everything. And like, it must stink in there. <laughs> I think stale is a perfect word to describe like how yeah. the the color work in this in this comic works because yeah. it, it does have that thing where everything just feels like it's settled a bit and like yeah. it's like there's a fire raging outside the mall but it's it can't encroach upon in like you do get a shot of how weather torn and like dilapidated the the world is outside of it and it is it's all like I don't know just suffused with this brown grimness yeah. and it's seeping into the mall itself. And like yeah. the entire book looks that way. It looks dated. It looks yeah. It and like in the way that in the way that like an abandoned mall would look mm. dated as well. Like they get that down pat. Um, and uh, yeah, I do like what you were saying about the uh, like the facial expressions and the character designs and stuff. I like how it flits back and forth between being like really um, like angular and twisted, but then also dropping in some kind of like cartoony over the top stuff as well. And it like bounces back and forth between those two styles or like like, softly dappled, painted facial, uh, you know, expressions uh, stroked on. But then it, it goes into, like, bold, blocky colours. The um the thing about, like, the different character designs based on the, the tribal shops that they've aligned themselves to, like, <laughs> my favourite bit is the, um there's, like, a sneaker shop, sorry, a trainer shop for, yeah. for the English listeners. Yeah. And <laughs> they're, they're all dressed in, like, their sports clothing, and the, the lead guy is dressed like... Like stereotypical American coach, but instead of like Wearing having a bunch of whistles, it's Footlocker. Yeah, right? a bunch of whistles instead of like cut off ears as trophies around his yeah, neck. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's cool. It's it's Footlocker. Yeah, it's basically like tribal yeah. Footlocker. It's, it's, yeah. it's wild. I I like the Hot Topic kids towards the end. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, everything everything about it is just like it just has such a wicked sense of humor in that way. Mm. I, lo- I love the idea that maybe because yeah. I don't think they talk about it. This is just something I've got like head cannon. But the hot topic girl, where like she's holding, um, is it called a mace? Where it's like a stick, a chain, and then a spiky ball at the end. It's a mace, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. a flail. I'll- or a flail. And I love the idea that it's probably really like cheap and tacky because it's come from yeah. the shop and it's not actually a real thing. It's just meant to like be um, like dressing. Yeah. Uh, if you want, if you want to present as having one of those things, but it doesn't really yeah. so like it'll just like crumble apart. Yeah, well, I like I like the idea that um, these guys like um, have just got these weapons from like these shops that we would like mall ninjas in. Cars. Yeah, that's that's, like, that's we, the one I was trying to think went, of. Like yeah. these like incredibly ornate like replica swords from Lord of the Rings and shit. Mm. You know, <laughs> I just love the idea of that, and like I just love the cynicism of this whole idea that the mall is the one thing left standing, and it's probably the thing that got us into this mess. Mm. Um. I just think that's great. There's, there's there's one really good splash page in this where like there's a bunch of action yeah. happening at one go. Like after the the build the the build up towards a fight, and then it's like yeah. the climatic scene in the fight, and just everyone's everyone's expression and just like how how stylized the whole arrangement is, yeah. and like you get flashes of everybody's allegiance and mm. you know their their fashion sense and their style and everything. It, it works really well. Yeah, exactly. It 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 pushed all the right buttons for me. It had mm. my sense of humor, I think. So that's why I was in it with. I I have all of this praise for it, but I think I'm just not in the mood for more post-apocalyptic scenarios anymore. I think the thing that dragged me through this because I wasn't in the mood for this when I started it, but the humor is what kept me going, and like the the curiosity to see what's happening with these people who have like picked up these strange allegiances based on the shopping mall um, shops and stuff. 
that yeah. was enough to pull me through like the negativity, like the general sense of depression through this book. So I, I it's actually re- it's yeah. it's a testament to the writing that it could it could pique my interest despite the initial like the way it looks, despite what its its premise is. Yeah. So um, your list of credits for that it is um, Gary Dorman and Michael Morici. Uh, with uh, Emil Gladstone, um, art by Zach Hartong, colours by Addison Duke, and letters by Jim Campbell. Mm-hmm. And that is Maul on Vault Comics. Um, and just again, that will be available August the 28th in Orgo Comic Shops. So get in there and pre order it. Uh, now, in the back of this, there is a 10 page black and white ash cam. For a upcoming horror title called The Plot. Uh, now that will be available September 25th, 2019. Um, and yeah, it's um, this just a fantastic looking horror title. Like So the blurb for this one uh, as follows. In order to receive, first you must give. When Chase, Blaine's estranged brother and sister-in-law are murdered... He becomes guardian to Mackenzie and Zack, the niece and nephew he hardly knows. Seeking stability for the children, Chase moves his newly formed family to his ancestral home in Cape Augusta, which overlooks a deep black bogland, terminal, teeming with family secrets. So, um, like, with this book, uh, it's a, this 10-page preview is, like, absolute fire. Like, I cannot wait to read the rest of it. It's like a horror story with its roots in mental illness and it, the, the hereditary nature of mental illness. Um, in reading this Ashcan, I felt like I was watching a horror movie at the cinema only to have it rudely interrupted when the projector malfunctioned or something. <laughs> and, like, I'm going to have to complain and get a ticket for another showing to catch the whole thing. Because <laughs> it's great. Uh, the book is looking so good and it will make a great horror story. And, like, I can't wait to get into a read this in autumn, really, because the premise is really interesting, and uh, the artist on this is Joshua Hickson of Shanghai Red. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, and it's already looking stunningly moody in black and white, and it 100% fits the tone of the writing. And, like, heck, I could read the full series in black and white because I just think it works. Um. Like, the power of monochrome and black and white in comics, actually, I think, especially is, um, especially in horror comics, actually, or comics with stories where the writer is trying to build a heavy atmosphere is, like, vastly underrated. Like, I think, I think black and white comics work really, really well sometimes, and I, I think this, I mean, having it in colour will 100% be a bonus if that's what's going to happen, but, like, these 10 pages are working for me in black and white, you know? Now, um, what I also found out is that this is supposed to be um, the inaugural title of um, this horror label that Vault are launching called Nightfall. So it's Vault's Nightfall line. And um, the Vault website actually makes it sound really cool, cooler than I could. So I'm just going to read it out. Uh, Vault Comics is thrilled to unearth Nightfall, an annual event focused on tales of horror. Every year, as the weather turns brisk and autumn sets in, nightfall comes. As Vault continues its usual line, 
Select new series introduced from September to December will bear the Nightfall icon, promising genuine horror. Nightfall series will release like any other Vault periodical, including uh, concluding based on the title's planned length. And uh, the plot is going to be one of Nightfall's inaugural titles. Um, so I will give you the uh, the credits for the plot. So um, the plot is written by Tim Daniel and uh, Michael Marucci. Uh, again, um, one of the people that worked on uh, the mall. Um, and it is drawn by Joshua Hickson of Shanghai Red. So I am like, yeah, give me more of this, please. Um, did you read this, Ashkan, Ray? I didn't actually know. I didn't, didn't realize it was at the end of the mall. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like at the back. You should go back and read it then. Okay. Uh, when you get a chance, because it's fantastic. Um, and I, I am big into this and I cannot wait for the rest of it because like, I think obviously it's done on like completely on purpose, but it leaves you at a really, 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 really like cliffhangery spot. Hmm. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I, I want to go back and, and read the rest of that. Um, so yeah, um, Ray, uh, where are we with you next? And I think I've depleted my my run of comics that I have available to to talk about. I had Homunculus and them all, um, but you've got a few more to talk about, right? Yeah. So what I'll do is I'll just bust into the last two on my list then. So um, one of the first ones was DC Comics Lois Lane. So oh yeah, cool. Yeah. I wanted to hear about this. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So like, um, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> Lois Lane once again has her own book, and uh, this is like a kind of atmospheric detective um, journalist story, I guess is the best way I can describe it. Um, What I will do is I will give you a blurb. So, on the road and out of Metropolis and carrying a secret that could disrupt Superman's life, Lois Lane embarks on a harrowing journey to uncover a threat to her husband and a plot that reaches the highest levels of international power brokers and world leaders. So, it's a really good start to what promises to be a great story, and it has Greg Rooker on writing duties, which is always a massive plus as far as I'm concerned, and uh, what he does here is, like, absolutely fantastic. So, we have, like, a detective story with Lois Lane at the heart of it, taking centre stage. Um, We get to see Lois as the hard-working, determined journalist who will stop at like absolutely nothing to expose the truth and get it out of there isn't afraid to put her name on it you know she's 100% committed to what she does and uh yeah there's just like a great bit at the beginning of the comic where um her editor's like well when we publish the article we can sign it off as daily planet staff and and she's like no mine (laughs) you put my name on it i don't care what they say or how they come back at me you put my name on it kind of thing and i love that and like this isn't the first book where lois has taken um center stage but it is definitely a breath of fresh air and like i love the atmosphere and the general mood of this book and you can tell like from this opening issue like that this is the initial tug on a thread in an enormous web of conspiracy and I am like 100% here for it. Um, the artwork in here is is like the realism 
really helps to build the mood and atmosphere like there's some it's like quite quite a lot of real quite leans heavily towards realism here the artwork and it's really good for that um there's some incredibly dark lines and at certain points really intense shadow which makes the whole thing feel heavy and burdened with tension which is really cool and that like color work as well with that feeds into it perfectly um and it just creates the perfect storm for a specific sequence i really like in this book that references the watergate scandal um specifically bob woodward and mark felt like meeting in car parks and such at Mm -hmm. night um and the dialogue here is great and the panel switching to first person towards the end of the sequence is a wonderful touch the way the whole sequence is framed and ending with those five panels as well it's almost as if we're there watching from the shadows as if we are a third part of the meeting in the car park and now anybody who is a fan of dc will know that um there are two questions there is the question and then there is the question that is renee montoya um who was a detective in the gcpd and Renee Montoya is back in this book as the question, which is really cool. And I think in this specific scene I'm talking about, I think you are looking through the eyes of Renee Montoya and the other question is there. And then all of a sudden at the end, when the documents are handing over from Lois, it is to Renee Montoya, not to um victor sage or vic sage um and i like i genuinely love the way that plays out and then like when you go back and read that sequence again after seeing what happens later on in the book it just has a whole extra layer to it and it's just great yeah so so i i'm excited to see where this web of conspiracy goes and i am like 100 percent invested in this and i love the fact that lois has her own book and we're getting to see this whole other side of lois where she is this like I mean, obviously we get to see this in other books anyway, but getting to see it spotlighted, you know, like her on her own as this like, and and Superman playing a supporting role as well. Like that's another thing about this book, like Superman's in it, but he's playing a supporting role as a love interest. So (laughs) it's like, Mm. it's really cool how they flipped it. I'm really into this. So yeah, it's worth checking out, Ray, if you get round to it. Okay. Yeah, it was it was intriguing, and I wanted to know if it did do the thing that you just said, where like Superman will play a supporting role in her life. But that's yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, that's that's kind of what they do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to grab you the credits for that. So that is Lois Lane, uh, number one, and um, that is uh, Greg Rooker as the writer, uh, Mike Perkins artist we have paul mounts on colors and simon boland on letters uh we have variant cover by jenny frisson uh main cover by mike perkins and yeah it's it's a great issue and um i fully recommend like if you like your detective tales if you like your you kind of you know like people get into the root of things like journalisty type stuff then this is this is this kind of story for you uh on from there is the last one on my list which is giant size ecstatics now um i'm just going to start by saying 
the ecstatics are back and they are returning next year which means more allred on my pull list which is always a good thing because like anybody who has listened to a single episode of this cast knows that i love the work of mike and laura allred um just love what they do with comics i love the whole kind of like psychedelic pop art thing that they have going on like with their art i just think it's like chef's kiss um and um yeah so the ecstatics are returning next year which is revealed at the end of this issue now this is giant size ecstatics which um i'll just give you a bit of a background on the ecstatics first so we'll start there so it's a superhero team of mutants which are also reality TV stars marketed as superstars kind of thing. Um, and with that comes the drama and everything else that you associate with being a celebrity persona. Um, and that is all kind of reflected in the comics. And this is something that evolved from the X-Force comics. Um, now, this evolution began back in 2001 when... Peter Milligan and Michael Red took over duties on the X-Force comics and took things in a completely different direction. Um, and things got very psychedelic very fast. Like, there was some surrealness in there and things like that. And it's just... Yeah, the book itself is mainly satirical of the superhero team and genre. Um, so, in calling this book Giant Size Ecstatics, and with this book hailing the return of the Ecstatics... It is already a play on the landmark giant size X-Men from 1975, which was basically a return of the X-Men in fresh stories. Because until, like, for a period, they were reprinting old X-Men stories. And then in 1975, there was new X-Men stories. And the beginning of that was giant size X-Men. Um, and... They've also done that before because Ecstatics number one, uh, the cover was also giant size Ecstatics. So after X Force was cancelled and Ecstatics took its place, it came in as giant size Ecstatics, Ecstatics number one. Now, so they're just like, again, they're messing with the superhero comic genre and like the way death works in superhero comics and everything else because at the end of the original Ecstatics run, pretty much everyone died um and this single issue this giant size ecstatics 2019 i'm gonna call it from now on because i think i've just confused you um (laughs) (laughs) is true to form as far as ecstatics comics go like i love the artwork of the r reds anyways like i've talked banged on ad infinitum about how cool their stuff is and how mike and laura already make a fantastic team Mm. um everything they they do kind of pops with bold lines and colors and everything stands out beautifully and for me it just kind of represents the pure essence of comics artistically um and there's enough realism in the subjects but just enough surrealism in the method and the colors and it just kind of like walks that fine tightrope that you know you could take it in any which direction, in either direction, and it would be comfortable. And it's just this bold, like, bright pop art, and it's just a joy to look at and read. Um, The writing here is on form, and it's everything you'd expect from an ecstatics book. Um, It's a great deconstruction of celebrity and the superhero team and and satire of reality TV. 
and I would recommend it to anyone. Um, also, it looks gorgeous, as I keep saying, which reminds me uh, of another bit of news on the subject of the All Reds, actually, and that is that um, there is going to be a David Bowie biography graphic novel uh, that Mike and Laura already have worked on, which is set for release next January, called Bowie, Stardust, mm-hmm. Reagans, Moon Age, and Moon Age Daydreams. That's going to be amazing. Yeah, and I've seen some art for it already floating about the internet, and it looks great. And I cannot wait to check that out. But yeah, um, Giant Size Ecstatics is coming back next year as well. So, I mean, Ecstatics is coming back next year. Giant Size Ecstatics is the beginning of that. It's kind of like the the herald, as it were, the Silver Surfer telling you that Galactus is going to come and munch down on your planet. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like I'm I'm into this, and I'm all here for the return of the Ecstatics because it's a great book. Um, and again, again, Ray, this is something I feel you would really enjoy. Okay, I'll definitely take a look. Yeah, yeah. So, I guess that wraps us up, and I'm going to give you the full credits for Giant Size Ecstatics before we do anything else. So, it is written by Peter Milligan. Art is Michael Doc Arred. Colorist, Laura Arred. Uh, letterer, Nate Piercos of Blambot Studios. So, like, Peter Milligan and Mike Arred were, like, kind of the original team behind the uh ecstatics in the beginning anyway like when when it first became ecstatics after being x-force when they took over and just took it in a completely new direction um and pissed a lot of people off at the time actually (laughs) but it was a really great comic and i don't care so because i'm i'm glad we got this in the because because it's absolutely fantastic um but yeah i mean wow yeah, so glad that's coming back because, wow. Yeah, so um, that is us done for the comics portion. I guess we should skip over to the pull list, Ray. So um, I'm going to start with what's coming out on 1707, which is the day that this podcast is available. So uh, first on my list, I have Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. So Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen is back. Yes, has his own, well, returns to print, a new comic called Superman's Pal Jimmy Olsen. Okay, so, Jimmy Olsen must die. Wait, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Jimmy Olsen lives? Superman's best friend and daily planet photographer, Jimmy Olsen tours the bizarre underbelly of the DC Universe in this new miniseries featuring death, destruction, giant turtles, and more. It's a century-spanning whirlwind of weird that starts in Metropolis and ends in Gotham City. And then we kill Jimmy. <laughs> um, and it is... Um, it's a 12-issue maxi-series. And uh, you'll like this, Ray, because it's Matt Fraction. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we've got writer Matt Fraction and artist uh, Steve Lieber. So I'm, I'm into that. I think I'm going to have to pick that up and down for that. Um, next one on my list, we have, uh, Loki number one. So Loki now has his own book and, uh, so we'll, this, uh, kind of spins out of War of the Realms. So Earth's Mightiest Hero in an on, on, new ongoing series. After dying a grisly death in the War of the Realms, Loki learned a valuable lesson in warmongering. Don't get caught. But now he has a whole set new set of responsibilities and his brother Thor is not about to let him walk away from them this time. Um, Late Show and Black Panther versus Deadpool writer Daniel Kibblesmith takes the God of Mischief in a thrilling new direction. So we've got Daniel Kibblesmith as the writer. Um, 
Oscar Barzadula is the artist. Uh, we have a cover artist, uh, Oscar Yidrim, and um, we have a variant cover by Will Sleeney, um, Rafael Albuquerque. We have variant cover by Emmanuel Lupacino as well. So um, yeah, Loki in his own book. Um, other things on my list. Uh, we've got Sarah and the Royal Stars which is something that we did a review of in episode 64, wasn't it? We previewed it. Mm. And uh, I was really into this. And uh, it's this really cool kind of um, Middle Eastern fantasy book uh, that I recommend checking out. If you want to hear more about that, go back to episode 64 and give it a listen because it's fantastic. Um, And it's something that I I 100% recommend that you guys go and grab because... It's a great bit of fantasy, a great bit of escapism. And uh, the book itself is gorgeous anyway. Like, some of the character designs are fantastic. Um, so it is well worth a look. Uh, on top of that, the this is on Vault Comics, by the way. And on top of that, there's another Vault book called Resonant, which is another one that we've discussed and talked about that Ray really liked. Ray, do you want to bang on about Resonant for a little while? Yeah, I'll give a very brief overview because we did review it in also in um, episode number 64. So go back and listen to that for the full review. But I really liked it. This was my flavor of post-apocalyptic, um, like where, you know, mother, mother nature has reclaimed the earth back, but there's also something sinister going on. I just, I love the artwork in it. I love the characters. I'm really, really curious about the story, even though not much is given away in issue one, but highly recommend it. I'd go pick that up. That's, as you said, out on the 17th of July. Yes, uh, also on the 17th of July, we have Jughead's Time Police number two. <laughs> Sweet. So, yeah, more Jughead's Time Police, more comic fun, something else I can sit and re- uh, drink root beer and read. <laughs> uh, we've also talked about Jughead's Time Police on a previous episode, so mm. if you've been listening, you'll know that Jughead's Time Police is good. Yeah, we both gushed about this, yeah. Yeah, issue number one <laughs> at least. Yeah. Um, there was a new number, uh, we've got Silver Surfer Black number two, which uh, I gushed about Silver Surfer black on again on issues issue 64 wasn't it issues mm-hmm. episode 64 gosh what's going on my words I've lost my words um yeah so episode 64 again was silver surfer black so you can go back and listen to that and and we will tell you how good silver surfer black is but i think the whole internet knows how good silver surfer black is because everyone loved it so uh yeah um also uh New number one that I came across that is looking interesting called Ragnarok, the Breaking of Helheim. And uh, instantly appealed to me because of its Vikingness. Um, so this is, uh, I believe, IDW. And uh, the blurb is as follows. In the end, the gods gathered together and met their foes on the battle plain of Vigrid. There, so the stories tell gods and their great enemies slaughtered each other stars fell from the sky Midgard itself sank into the all-encompassing ocean and the nine worlds were destroyed in this issue Thor hears a voice out of the past and learns that not all the old stories are true and that the path before him now leads to Helheim the land of the dead and uh, this is Walt Simonson and Stan Sakai has done a variant cover for it. This is uh, Walt Simonson, uh, one-man band, writer-artist, cover artist. So, yeah, it's looking good. Um, looks interesting. 
if you like your Norse myths, it's just something something that I picked up and hit my list because of its North myth, North Norse mythiness. But yeah, it's, it's it's totally totally worth looking at if you're into that stuff. Um, and then we move on to the twenty fourth of the seventh. But Ray, have you got anything to shout about before that? No, apart from um, Jughead's Time Police Two and Resident Number One, something I'm just curious about is Blade Runner. Um, I think it's Blade Runner 2019 is what it's called. Um, has writing by Michael Green and Mike Johnson. I believe Michael Green had writing credits on the Blade Runner. Um, is it 2047? The recent one that came out, and also Logan. So that's piqued my interest. The the covers look cool. Um, I don't really know much else about it, but that just I might pick that up just out of curiosity. Is it 2019 or 2109? No, it's 2019. I think I wrote it down wrong. Oh, okay, because I'm looking <laughs> yeah. at it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. There you go, Pete behind the curtain for you guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm looking at the run sheet saying, what? But yeah, there we go. Um, so I'll just move on to the 24th of July, which brings us Archie versus Predator 2, number one. <laughs> what? <laughs> really? <laughs> Is that yes. a thing? Yes, really, it's a thing. Now, um, we've had, uh, there was a previous uh, run called Archie versus Predator. Um, and... This was back in 2015 on Archie Comics. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so Archie characters have had like a tradition of team ups going back to kind of like the 1994 Marvel one that they did with the Punisher. Um <laughs> But yeah, uh, this this just all this does is just give credence to the fact that Riverdale is in fact a hellmouth, um, <laughs> and uh, we're now basically Archie versus Predator Two is now uh, on the cards. So uh, Betty, Veronica, and Predator Archie have been left in the wreckage of their town. All their friends are dead. Normally, they'd just go down memory lane and get home again where everything's okay, but that's no longer an option. It isn't until they find an undamaged car and drive it down a different road where they can finally return to Riverdale, but their hometown feels different. And it's made even more bizarre when they come face to face with a few people they'd never expect themselves. So they come face to face with themselves. Only different, newer versions. Little do they know, predators on Mars are watching them, planning their next attack. So... Archie versus Predator. And, um, yeah, so that's uh, Alex DeCampi writing that um, Robert Hack is the artist and cover artist. Robert Hack being your artist from the um, Sabrina books. Um, we have variant cover by Francesco Francavilla, of course, uh, which is looking really nice. Um, and, yeah, it's just... It it just sounds like my cup of tea, really. To be honest, I don't know. <laughs> don't know about you, Ray. Will you be picking up Archie versus Predator? <laughs> just to see what the hell is going on. Yeah, I'll pick it up. Yeah. So on top of that, we've got House of X, which is something that I've talked about. So House of X number one, which uh, ties with Powers of X number one as well, which comes out on the thirty first of July, which happens to be my birthday. Um, and uh, House of X number one uh, released twenty fourth July twenty nineteen. 
Um, so, Face the Future, superstar writer Jonathan Hickman, Secret Wars, Avengers, Fantastic Four, mm. takes the reins of the X-Men universe. Since the release of Uncanny X-Men number one, there have been four seminal moments in the history of the X-Men. Giant Size X-Men, X-Men Age of Apocalypse, New X-Men, four iconic series that introduced an era, a new era for Marvel's mutants and revolutionized the X-Men. In House of X, Charles Xavier reveals his master plan for mutant kind, one that will bring mutants out of the shadow of mankind into the light once more. And to go alongside House of X, there is a uh, series Powers of X, which releasing on like later on in the month. And uh, again, that is Jonathan Hickman. And uh, it's his revolutionary new direction for the X-Men. Intertwining with House of X, Powers of X reveals the secret past, present and future of mutant kind, changing the way you look at every X-Men story before and after. So this is like the next seminal moment in the history of the X-Men. We, Me and uh, Leon, I think I had a brief discussion about this with Leon on a previous cast. Um, and um, this is something to look out for, House of X and Powers of X, so get them both on your pull list, because you will need to read both. Um, We also have Batman Curse of the White Knight, number one, which, again, is something that I've already mentioned my excitement for on a previous cast, Um, and this is a continuation of the Batman uh, White Knight story that was so cool and this is again i think i talked about the preview for this there's a a couple of pages of preview on a previous cast that i talked about um so go back and check that out uh we also have the history of the marvel universe um which if i can just get you the blurb notes for that um this is an all-new story by legendary creator mark wade everything you ever wanted to know about the marvel universe in one lavishly illustrated series from the Big Bang to the Twilight of Existence, History of the Marvel Universe chronicles completely for the first time everything that was, is, or will be. Lushly illustrated text tells the complete story of the Marvel Universe, revealing previously unknown secrets and serving as the ultimate reference book for Marvel's fans. Uh, witness the greatest tale ever told and be prepared for some shocking revelations. Um, and then the next one on the list... Uh, final one that I've got for 24th to 7th is Marvel's Epilogue, which is an all-new epilogue to go with the uh, the Marvel's book. That um, So they've been re-releasing the Marvel's book, right, as a miniseries. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did it in three, is- like three issues. They did the Marvel's Annotated. So this is like a brand new epilogue that has been written um, to go alongside that. And uh, this is an all-new standalone epilogue to the classic Marvel's graphic novel written by Kurt Busiek and fully painted by Alex Ross. A Marvel's look at the all-new, all-different X-Men of the 1970s. So in this 16-page story, Alex and Kurt bring Marvel's world to brilliant, realistic life one last time as the now-retired Phil Sheldon and his daughters in Manhattan. In Manhattan to, he's, in, he's in Manhattan to see, his, to see the Christmas lights with his daughters. Uh, they find themselves in the middle of a clash between the outsider heroes and the deadly sentinels, giving them a closer perspective of, on the mutant experience. Uh, also featuring behind-the-scenes look at the making of this special story and other bonus features, so I shall be grabbing that. That is the end of my pull list. Ray, you got anything else to mention? Um, only a couple. One that I noticed that I thought you might pick up on is something called Rise of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Sound Off. It looks interesting, and it's TMNT. I thought that might be on your list, but I guess not. Yeah, um, and. Yeah, that's the new mm. TMNT cartoon that Nickelodeon are doing now, which I have yet oh, to check I out. I still haven't gotten around to that, which is 
fucking shameful. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's the comic to, to sort of like coincide. That's a comic that coincides with that. So it does look like a very Nickelodeon yeah. cartoon art style. It's it's kind of cool. I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd be interested to see what you think of it. Yeah. Um, and then also there's the magnificent Ms. Marvel number five. So that's the new run that's been um, done, been been written by Saladin Ahmed and art by Minkyu Jung. Um, and this one is going to be the end of this first arc of Saladin Ahmed's writing. And also, um, I'm super, I'm more interested in this one than normal because uh, Kamala's going to get a new costume, and I'm curious to see what that's all about. So, yeah, um, yeah. change change of paradigm. It'll be cool. Nice. And that brings us to the end of this episode. So that has been Ace Comicals episode number 67. Um, you can find us at www.acecomicals.com, which is kind of the hub for everything. And you'll find links to all our various social media accounts and everything else. You'll find us on uh, Instagram under Ace Comicals, Facebook if you look for Ace Comicals. We're even on Twitter under Ace Comicals, would you believe it? Um, <laughs> you can get in touch at acecomicals at gmail.com um where that's our email address if you want to write to us you can uh write to us in a dm at twitter you can get involved with the conversation at us you know um ask us questions send us suggestions all that kind of stuff we 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 want and we love um you can find me on twitter under at bato that's b-a-t-t-o-u um you can find us to listen to us on apple podcast castro overcast pocketcast spotify stitcher and tune in um is that the full list i think that's the full list ray where can we find you also on twitter at monke so that's at m-o-o-n-k-e-h yes and um if you so wish you can donate the price of a coffee to help keep the lights on at ace comicals uh, and that is at our ko-fi site which is ko-fi.com slash ace comicals uh, which is also a link to on our website. So if you like what you're listening to and you're feeling generous and, you know, you are so inclined, then you can donate to us the price of a coffee. And if um, you don't want to donate the price of a coffee, leave us a review on iTunes as well, because it really yeah. makes a difference. Yeah, it really yeah. helps. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> it, you know, leave us reviews. Just interact with us, please. <laughs> so uh that has been ace comicals episode number 66 and that is uh, 67 even sorry i'm going back in time and that is ace comicals over and out